Hi, friends. Welcome to Preacher, a podcast designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church, this podcast is for you. Welcome. I'm your host, Jen Hale Christie, and this is season four. We have a wonderfully supportive and encouraging Patreon community. Sarah, Lauren, Dave, Steve, Mark, Sheila, and Tom, I thank the world of you all, and I thank our God every time I remember you. If you are a listener who hasn't yet joined our Patreon community, now is a great time. Your support keeps this good work going, so thank you. Links are in the show notes. Friends, we are living in a truly remarkable time. Never before has the future seemed so uncertain. And what better time to be dwelling in the book of Acts among a people who were living in unprecedented times. May we find ourselves in these stories as we find ourselves in God's story. Today, we have a special guest preacher, and afterwards, I encourage you to stick around to hear our conversation about life, ministry, how this sermon is working on them, and hopefully find a little hope for the church. And now, let's hear a word. Acts 18, 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. I think it was the crucifixion that tripped Paul up. Way back at the beginning of Paul's story, the one that we have recorded in Acts, we read of his zealous passion to rid the world of this weird sect of believers who followed after a guy named Jesus Jesus, a man from Galilee, who had claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Paul was an educated Jew, and every educated Jew would understand that the one to be Messiah, as prophesied for generations, was to be a king and not a corpse. The Jewish Messiah was to rule the earth from a throne, not be condemned and executed by the Romans. 
The proof was in the pudding, as they say. Jesus died and that was that. How could he be the Messiah? Perhaps for that reason or another, Paul spent his time arresting and beating and hunting down those who followed Christ. In the earliest days of a young and growing Christian church, Paul was definitively on the one side of the conversation, and then he was not. All of a sudden, in the middle of the proverbial and literal road in Acts 9, Paul changes sides, solidly. He sees a vision of the living Jesus, and he begins to proclaim the very name he was only days before seeking to blot out and discredit entirely, a name that Paul would now suffer for instead of against. In this decision, he decimated his credibility with the most zealous Jews. He was one of them voraciously, and then not anymore. The scandal of this abrupt pivot would linger and track him for the remainder of his living days. But he followed after Jesus anyway. The living, speaking Christ convinced him. One way or another, Paul was all in. Just after Paul's baptism, he tries to teach about Jesus in Damascus and then in Jerusalem, but the disciples were afraid of him and the Jews continuously conspired to kill him. It was a man named Barnabas who stood up for Paul back then. Barnabas, a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, championed Paul and believed in him, trusting that the Lord had turned his heart. After a time, the newly converted Paul was sent by the believers in Jerusalem to Tarsus because his presence caused so much trouble, and it was in Tarsus where Barnabas retrieved Paul and brought him to Antioch, where they worked together to strengthen and edify the church there. Their first mission was to carry famine relief to Judea on behalf of the Antioch church. In Acts 13, Barnabas and Paul are sent together a second time by the Antioch church, this time commanded by the Holy Spirit. The two and their companions embarked on an epic journey then, taking them through Cyprus, Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Believers came to Christ in all of these places, which caused both rejoicing and consternation back in Jerusalem. There was great discussion regarding what to do with these pagan believers regarding the sacred rite of circumcision. A debate ensued with Paul and Barnabas as participants. A decision was agreed upon. And Paul and Barnabas, partners yet again on behalf of the new believers they knew and loved, took a positive resolution from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. After some time in Antioch again, Paul suggested to Barnabas that they together retrace their previous travels to encourage the Christians. Barnabas agreed to go, but a sharp disagreement ensued that left Paul and Barnabas parting ways indefinitely. A surprising heartbreak and damaging moment to lose a friend who had once been your champion and for years your faithful partner. Barnabas goes one way and Paul strikes out in another direction. In Acts 16, we read of a specific directive Paul receives as he and his other companions set out separate from his friend and co-worker Barnabas. Paul and his companions 
traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It was this very trip that culminates in Paul's arrival in Corinth and our text in Acts 18. A brief glance through Acts 16 and 17 reveals that Paul's travels just before Corinth were inundated with traumatic conflict. Beginning with a disagreement with Barnabas so sharp that the two men parted company, Paul and his companions, led by a vision, step into ministry that results in criminal charges, an angry crowd, a severe flogging, and a request for them to leave the city of Philippi. They move on then to Thessalonica where, after their teaching, a mob and riot ensue, resulting in their host Jason and other believers being charged before the city officials for wrongdoing. Paul thus has to leave that city and moves on to Berea, where he again teaches to crowds that are agitated against him, and he ultimately has to leave there too. Leaving his companions behind to minister without him, Paul is taken alone to Athens, where he is left to wait for his companions to find him. In Athens, in Acts 17.16, Paul says he is greatly distressed with the idolatry he finds there. He teaches and debates both in the synagogue and in the marketplace, landing finally in the Oropagus, where he calls out the idolatry in Athens, proclaims the resurrection, and endures sneers. It is from Athens that he then arrives alone to Corinth, where he devotes himself to preaching, and where the Jews, his own faith heritage, again oppose him and become abusive. It is on the heels of all of that strife and struggle that he begins to focus his work on the Gentile population of Corinth, a ministry that would ultimately establish the Corinthian church addressed in later letters. At every stop on this vision-led journey, there are some who believe. At every stop on this vision-led journey, there are many who do not. We often focus on the successes of Paul's journeys. When I would venture to guess that in moments, it was the failures and defeats that sometimes sat heaviest with Paul. For Paul, I don't think the sneers, the stones, and the riots droned quietly in the background. I think they bore out loudly in his every present moment, especially the sneers. Back in Athens, just before Corinth, separated for a time from his companions, the teacher Paul is called a babbler who advocates foreign gods. And though he perseveres and continues to present his new teaching to the thinkers and philosophers who gathered to hear him, he would inevitably meet the insulting smirks of a foreign crowd 
that he had not been able to fully convince. This is not a fun experience. A sneering crowd can haunt a person for days and weeks. I know, because it has happened to me. Teaching into a different cultural context with ideas that are challenging for everyone. Resurrection? Or a creator God who gives instead of requires? Teaching such things can create suspicion and result in an overall isolating experience, even if some in the crowd do believe. It is often the faces of those who don't believe who stay with us. Unfortunately, one sneering face often reminds of another one. One voice of mockery multiplies in the echoes of other times when we have been outnumbered and demeaned. Paul would not be reaching very far back to recall such demeaning. His whole present journey had been riddled with derision and abuse. Stoned, threatened, mobs, riots, all led by the vision that directed him. After a trip like that one, I think he might be left wondering why and what good was all this and now what do I do? Not to mention Did I hear God correctly, or perhaps was that really God talking to me all those weeks ago? From the furor of that journey, Paul arrives to Corinth. I perceive that Paul's frame of mind in Acts 18 can be deduced from the message God sends in a second clarifying vision in verse 9 through 10. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Do not be afraid. There would be no reason to say this if Paul wasn't, in fact, afraid. Keep speaking. Arguably, There's no reason to say this if Paul wasn't in fact considering quitting. I have many people in this city. In Corinth? Before it was evangelized? The story we have in all of our biblical canon is so incredibly, deliberately human. All the flesh and blood people stumbling and storming through their lives in certain ways that would be remembered and retold. We don't negate the biblical authority by acknowledging the humanity therein. We honor it by clarifying where exactly God sits in the midst of it. With. He always sits with. And this presence, his presence, may not always solve but it will constantly summon from very nearby. Paul's original vision in chapter 16 was a message urging him to hurry over because there were people who were eagerly waiting for his help. However, not every onward moment appeared just that way. But Paul pressed on anyway. He showed up over and over as the human man he was, and he saw God work. In Acts 18, when Paul arrives in Corinth, it seems that Paul was feeling fear. 
He reiterates this in his letter to the established Corinthian church later in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. When you arrive to a new place beaten and afraid, and God builds a church from that, you know unequivocally that this was done by God. Perhaps this clarifies Paul's deep love and passion regarding the body of believers in Corinth. In ways, he and they were saved together. In my experience, this is often the most illuminated way through. Finding God together etches throughout the biblical narrative, and Paul's story is certainly no exception. Who better to persuade of the Messiahship of Jesus than the very smart guy who was the most valiantly opposed and then most fully convinced? In Acts 18, 1-11, Paul's arrival in Corinth, in the wake of a struggling and pummeling journey, offers us some practical wisdom and insight. Number one, make your tents. What is your skill, your practice? What have you learned from your youth? How have you been trained? It is always good to do that work, unapologetically. Paul made tents because it was his skill, and Paul reasoned with all who would listen that Jesus was the Messiah because it was his calling. He was a focused person, not a scattered one, and this is wise, especially when under duress. Number two, find your safe space friends and hold on. Paul connects with other believers. In this passage, there are new friends, Priscilla and Aquila, whom he connects with based on shared skill. This connection results in a dear friendship that would last over the long haul. Paul also depends on old friends like Silas and Timothy. In the midst of trying times, Paul continued to reach out even when he was tired and hurting. A further and very valuable point here is that when folks turned abusive, Paul protested and left the scene. He was a man zealously true to his belief, and debate with opposition does not seem to be an intimidation to him. Debate and disagreement are very different than abuse. Paul needs humility into his writing, born from the truth of his experiences, and that humility never replaces his agency when faced with outright abuse. In Acts 18, Paul did not tolerate abusive behavior, but responds with the dignity of a clarifying light. He shakes his clothes out in protest and moves on to a more receptive space. It is so notable to see here how standing up to abuse did not leave Paul abandoned. Next door to the synagogue, and even in the synagogue, people still believed. In broken systems, abusive behaviors often deceive that one must stay and endure in order to faithfully produce. 
not so. Paul got away repeatedly, and that did not stop the message of God from bearing fruit. Number three, be truly you. Afraid, wanting to quit, confident, shattered, God calls humans, loves humans. We are not made to be superheroes. We are real. We do not have to dehumanize ourselves to pretend to be unaffected. God sees and knows anyway. We can be honest. Clarity is compassion, and this compassion nurtures both our own selves and our communities at the exact same time. We are all included in unconditional love. Number four, God has people everywhere. I love this point. Corinth was one of the great Roman cities of its time. Ben Witherington describes it as a strategically located center of trade, a manufacturing center, a major tourist attraction, and a center for religious pilgrimage where Aphrodite, Apollo, and other Roman gods were honored and worshipped in many different ways. Based on the correctives and discussion found in Paul's later letters to the Corinthian church, we can deduce that there were cultural practices well accepted within the Corinthian climate that were in opposition to a life in Christ. We often like to highlight that Paul brought the message of Christ to Corinth. And while he certainly did just that, it is also so valuable to recognize that God's word to Paul in the vision indicates that Paul was showing up to accompany God's people already there, too. For example, Titius Justus, who lived next door to the synagogue but was not a Jew, was already known as a worshiper of God. God is more than capable of getting the attention of his created ones. Paul tells us this in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Any proclaimer of the story of God joins into an ongoing process of reconciliation already initiated by God. As servants of God, the redemption story includes us and never originates with us. God's love is the origin. I find this a tremendous relief. Number five. God has a voice and he uses it. I find it wildly notable that Paul's journey with God began with the vision in Acts 9 and was directed throughout with the same, Acts 16, here in chapter 18, in 22, 23, and 27, we can find examples and testimonies of visions in the life of Paul. Often this consistent witness to Paul's life and work shapes into a defense of apostolic Paul and in a way lifts him a bit above the regular human realm where the rest of us reside. Perhaps, though, in every example throughout the biblical narrative of God's voice actively speaking to his creation, we are not meant to focus on the person who hears the voice, but instead on the one who loves enough to keep talking to us. Perhaps God's voice and direction and presence in and among us is meant to turn our eyes to God alone. In other words, this vision-directing theme that echoes throughout Paul's ministry 
and the life of the early church, as we find in Acts, is not meant to be about Paul at all. Instead, God's voice is about God. His work and his awareness and always, always his love. God moves and speaks all throughout the biblical narrative to remind us of who he is so that we can know him more. And this is never a one-way street, but a mutuality that finds this creator, this provider, ever always reaching back toward us, offering us relationship drenched in the clarifying love of him knowing us fully too. Just before our Acts 18 text, in Acts 17, Paul says, From one man he, the Creator God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us not far from any one of us. What a powerful message for today, for any day. Listen closely. Hear how very near he is to you. He speaks and we can hear him. And his voice can point our way. Paul's trials were far from over when he settled for an extended time in Corinth in Acts 18. He had been challenged and he would continue to be challenged, as we see in the verses that immediately follow our text today. Nonetheless, he persisted, partly because that seems to be the way zealous Paul would roll, but also, here in this passage, I think we catch a glimpse of the gap in his armor, a tender place of fear and conundrum, a place he made sure to highlight so that the Corinthian faith would rest on God's power as it should. We can trust in what the Lord declares and promises, and we can trust in what we hear him say. Not because we are good, but because he is. On the heels of such a challenging journey, I read that Paul needed the Corinthian gathering that begins in Acts 18. By his own testimony later in his letters, and by Luke's testimony offered here in Acts, Paul was not supreme. He was as a faithful follower of the one who led before him, persistently powering down to actively be one of. And that is a most healthy way to serve, from among. Sometimes it takes a struggling road to get where we are going. And while that can be disorienting and not in the least bit fun, we can be sure that God's eyes are on us and his voice awaits to soothe us through direction, reminder, and vision-casting hope. We might even, on the other side of a separated and lonely road, end up connected 
to those who will be our very faithful friends. Hearing from God did not make Paul's journey simple, nor did it protect from adversity or strife. God's message did definitively clarify the things that truly mattered. Where God is, near us, and where God will always be, with us. Those out there who still throw stones may clobber us toward a most liberating reality. We take God nowhere. We find God everywhere. With Paul, we can hear in wonder, my dear child, steady, steady on. Cheryl Cash, welcome to the Preacher Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. And you are coming to us all the way from around the world, from Uganda. <laughs> That's right. Thank <laughs> you for being <laughs> Thanks for being flexible and, you know, working with these crazy time zones. Yeah. So it's for our listeners, it's seven o'clock in the morning for Cheryl. So she's there with her coffee and it's nine o'clock here in Portland. Um, so we are totally winding down and getting the kids to bed. Yeah. Um, Cheryl, thank you so much for a beautiful sermon on Acts 18. Before we get to the sermon, tell us a little bit about yourself, about why you're in Uganda and what life looks like day to day. All right. Uh, right now, my life day to day looks so much like everybody else's. It's like the whole <laughs> world is doing the same thing. We're in lockdown too. So I'm at home a lot. Uh, we have been in Uganda for coming up on 25 years, so we've done wow. a lot of things here. Currently, um, my work, I'm working on a master's degree, and so I do a lot of work um, writing and reading just um, online. All my studies are online, so mm -hmm. I do that a lot, and we live in a village setting right now, so a lot of our teaching happens just right outside our door. All of our church community lives nearby, and so um, in normal times right now, we're not seeing everybody, <laughs> but in normal times, um, a lot of our work just happens right outside our gate and very nearby to us. So wow. it's a good season. It's a good so season. the master's that you're working on, is it something in the field of theology? It is. It's a master's in theology at okay. David Lipscomb at Hazel Lip. So okay, it, cool. Um, Close, close to the end. I have a Hebrew readings final this week. So I've been working hard. Oh, no big deal. <laughs> right, that's right. No big deal. <laughs> wow. And what, um, what does church life look like right now in the midst of what's going on in the world? We are experiencing something wonderful right now. So um, we have shifted our focus to dinner church uh, dinner church setting. So we do not meet in the mornings in the regular time. We mm -hmm. meet in the night time in village homes and have a fire. We eat together, have worship together, teaching, and then communion together. So we've been doing this about two years. It's very different. Our, our neighbors are very low change. They like tradition. And so changing this up from a morning setting to the evening has been a bit of a, um, 
a road for all of us, uh -huh. but it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. And so now since the, the virus has kind of taken over, we're seeing when Jeff checks on folks, when we call, they're like, we had dinner church last night. We can do this in our house. So it kind of opened that door oh, for them cool. to feel like, you know, we can do this. We, yeah. We've been doing this for a couple of years and we have permission to um, do this in our homes. And so we're, that's been exciting to see uh, that kind of settling in a little bit more. Um, but that's what we've been working on lately. Yeah. Cool. Dinner church. What, where did you guys get the inspiration for that? I mean, obviously Holy Spirit, but like what, yeah. <laughs> what else, what else sparked your creativity for that? Well, um, we had found through the years that it was just so different when we would teach in homes as mm -hmm. opposed to when people would gather at a church facility and we've always loved it more. Um, I think when we're in the homes, you hear from more people and it's just more personal. Mm -hmm. My husband has done tons of work like that. So that's where it began is on special occasions, like holidays, we would almost always try to do it in somebody's home. That just, that just kind of became the tradition. It started there. Um, then a myriad of other factors came into play. And one of them is my husband is getting his PhD, his dissertation, and he was mm -hmm. studying about moral development in this culture mm -hmm. and learning that that happens in the campfire setting at night. That's oh, where this culture learns how to be good people and to develop their character. And so, huh. um, his studies, um, the, the general, the pool that we had to do that. And then we had a lot of young people who were being supported to get their school fees from a certain organization. And that organization required they attend church on a Sunday morning at this certain place. And so we lost a lot of the folks that we had been working with for a long time because they had to go in order to go to school. Hmm. So we suggested our boys were very close friends with a bunch of these boys. And they said, let's, let's meet at night because they're free at night. So we had a <laughs> gathering at night and it was a meal because that was the time of day it was and all of this. And it was so wonderful. When we left, our youngest son said, that was the best church I've ever been to. And I want to do it again. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so from there, it just, it grew. And then my husband's studies have just poured into this so beautifully. And, and here we are to get two, two and a half years later. I think that's pretty much what we do all the time. So that's super, super encouraging. Yeah. And so, I mean, for the time that we're in right now, it's so low production. It's nice that everybody can feel like they can continue their normal church rhythms. I mean, obviously they're not meeting with their neighbors, but they can still kind of keep up with what they were used to um, in their yeah. nuclear family setting. Yes. That has just been, I don't know, just a burst of encouragement. He, my husband went to check on the neighborhood the other day and they said, we're, everybody was like, we're meeting, we're still, you know, our family is gathering at night and we're doing communion. Yeah. So, um, that, that was super encouraging. And we pray that, that they can continue and be encouraged with that for as long as this lasts. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Well, let's talk about your sermon if we can. Um, 
I really loved um, how you talked about, okay, so one of the things that I've been thinking about is I've been looking at kind of Paul's, um, Paul's journey, like becoming um, a follower of the way um, and kind of assimilating that into his um, practice of Judaism and times, like particularly looking at the conflict between him and Barnabas. And I've been thinking about this for the last several years, actually, like what if, like what if he and Barnabas had not had this significant conflict and parted ways? And then, you know, it seems like when they went and they meet Lydia, um, uh, like they were still on their way to go like find the the real synagogue, like the, the house of prayer, like, you know, okay, nice to meet you, but like we're on our way and they keep going and then they end up like, you know, Paul gets annoyed with this slave girl, cast the demon out, they're in jail, like all this bad stuff happens. And I feel like, um, the, at least the way that I was raised, we're, we're taught to like see Paul, like have Paul on this big pedestal and view him as like the guy who did everything right, who like founded all these churches, wrote all these letters, like he's so elevated. And yet when you get into the stories, like it seems like he's making mistakes. And I, I don't know, I want to say like, is that really what God intended? Or like, are, are we seeing that he was human too? Like he didn't always make the right choice. Like, but as you said, like, God is near us and, and God will always be with us. Like that's, that's what undergirds all of this, that like Paul's not perfect. We're not perfect. Nobody in there is perfect. You know, everybody's this fallible being kind of fumbling around, but trying to follow God. Um, and I love how you said that, um, you know, just because he heard from God, he had this direction from God. It didn't make his path, you know, easy, um, per se, and it didn't protect him from, from any suffering, um, but it really just clarified for him that God was with him um, and that God was near. Um, so tell me like how, how this sermon kind of developed for you and, and how it's, how it's working on you or has been working on you. Well, I, I love the study of Paul um, and I love, I love to hear. Um, I, I think it inspires me because I think he was just so human and I think he tells us that more than anything else. Some of his most eloquent passages are him saying, talking about his weakness and talking about how he hurt the church that he then came to be a part of. Um, that connects so much because I think in church service, we can elevate things over others. We can elevate levels of service and, and types of service over others. We can give them more authority. And I see Paul who had, as he so states, he had a lot of reasons to have authority, his education and you know his place in life and different things that he constantly is powering down. He's constantly yes. talking about that. I'm going to take this lowest place. And that, that is evidence to me that he in fact has seen Jesus because mm -hmm. that is what Jesus constantly does. Yeah. And that is accessible. That is accessible to all of us. If we, if we lock Paul away on a pedestal, then we miss that fellowship with him that says, you know, this is hard. And I had to trust in God to get me through this. I had to have the spirit telling me what the next right step would be because I, you know, I, I misstepped or I got pummeled by the adversity that was coming against me. Yeah. So I think that, um, 
to be in the work that we do um, in it, what was at once a foreign place. Now this feels like home to us as well, but there's still foreign parts of it, certainly. Um, to have that camaraderie that we don't have to get this right. And that, mm -hmm. you know, the, the point is connecting to the spirit and connecting to God. And he's going to carry this because he's here. He's here among these folks that he created and loves so much. It's our, it's our job to see him more and help eyes keep turning to where he is among mm -hmm. all of us and at work among all of us. I think Paul learned that as he went and he writes it. And I think he's kind of, he's, he's such a zealous sort of out there person. Yeah. Like here it is, this, this is what I'm doing and, and this is how it's gone. And that allows us all to keep learning with him and from his experiences. Yeah. That's beautiful. Okay, Cheryl, I want to talk some more about Paul, about giftedness, kind of about, you know, what you think his gifts were, talking about maybe about like advice that you would have for people who are who are thinking about going into ministry. Um, let's talk about gifts. All right. Um, I I'm learning this right now. This is a current road for me, so it's fun to talk about. Um, when I give a gift to my kiddos, I give them, it catches my eye because they like it. You know, what they're into catches my eye. And so, so you don't I, give them things that they don't want. I don't give them things okay. they don't right, want. And I, and, <laughs> and I feel real sad if I get that wrong. If you get, you want to give them the toys they like and the, the thing they're enjoying and they're into. Well, our God gives even better than we do. He loves us so much and he knows us so well. And so the gifts he gives us are things that delight us. Mm -hmm. And it, it starts with the thing that delights us. It's not God just determining all of that. I don't think, I think he sees what delights us and he gives us that mm. and says, let's, let's enjoy this together. And so we see in Paul often that he is sort of debating and reasoning, which is a very uh, Jewish thing to do as, as far as I've learned so far. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a Jew, but what I've witnessed is that there's this constant conversation in just the Hebrew language. You know, the Hebrew language did not have um, vowels, vowel points for a long time. And so mm -hmm. you could say a word with different vowels, which could be dependent on what part of the country you're from, mm -hmm. much like in America. I'm from mm -hmm. the South. Um, our vowels sound different in the South than <laughs> others. You, you can mix up a word really easily. So there was constant conversation, even in the biblical narrative about what does this mean? And what are you saying with this word? That's what it engages as conversation. And so mm -hmm. I think we see that in the life of Paul. Mm -hmm. He goes into synagogues and he reasons with, mm -hmm. he, he discusses, this yes. is the meaning of these scriptures. And I think, I think there's a part of that that delights him, that he, that he trained that way. And he is a, it, tend, it seems to be a very zealous personality. Like he is going to be all in with mm -hmm. what he thinks. And he wants to engage the topic so much so that when he went into foreign places, he would reason and, and converse with crowds of strangers who are different from him in so many ways. And mm -hmm. he would do that 
to reason about this man named Jesus. Yeah. Who, who he did not physically walk alongside, like mm-hmm. Peter and John and, and the disciples and the women who followed Jesus, Mary, Martha, they, they had personal contact. Yeah. Paul did not have that the same way, yeah. but he still loved Jesus with his whole life and wanted to reason this out. I think it mm-hmm. delighted him. I think that's what his whole mind, um, we see that when Silas and Timothy arrive in this chapter 18 passage that he hands things off to them Mm -hmm. and he dedicates himself. I think, I believe it says to preaching. I think that's the the word um, that is used there. And we often elevate that and think, well, that was the most important thing. Paul obviously took that for himself because that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I think, I think there's also the, the concept there that Paul loved it. Paul Mm -hmm. loved doing that. Yeah. And he was good at it. And so he did it. Mm-hmm. That that's the thing he did. And he, he handed off other work, maybe that he even viewed as more important to the, the young Timothy and the young, you know, the Silas who was so respected to let them do, you know, that important work as yeah. well. I don't, I don't think Paul was about elevating himself. Yeah. I think he was about serving and, and doing what he loved. And mm-hmm. I, I think we can see how God was interacting with him. I love being with people who love what I love. You know, we connect mm-hmm. with people who love what we love and that is available with God. Mm. He, he has good for us. He loves us and we can connect with him in those places of delight. Mm. I think Paul, I think Paul did that. I think we see him going to tent making. Yeah. Um, because he knew it. Yeah. You know, uh, this has me thinking about, you know, thinking about the gifts that we receive, things that delight us that, um, you know, so many of us, we receive these gifts from God, whether it's, you know, preaching or teaching or, or woodworking, whatever it is, like we have a variety of gifts. And in some, in some of us, in some periods in our lives, for whatever reason, we don't feel that boldness to step into that. You know, whether we think it's something we shouldn't do, we're not allowed to do, somebody else told us that we really shouldn't be doing it, whether or not it's like a, a moral, you know, reason or a, or a scriptural reason, you know, it may have nothing at all to do with religion or church, but um, sometimes we have these gifts that are so close to our heart, that are such a part of who we are, but there's this fear around stepping into them. And I think what you're describing in Paul is this incredible boldness to, to acknowledge that, the, that these are gifts that he has, that it's things that he enjoys doing, and that he just goes out and does it. And he's not ashamed of it. And he's not going to let anybody tell him not to, uh, you know, whether they are stoning him or putting him in jail, whatever they're doing, they're not going to stop him from living into these gifts that God has given him. I think it's one of the ways that Paul survives and endures. You um, cannot negate the trauma that he is enduring on these trips. He, mm. This one in particular, he loses his friend, Barnabas, who meant, I know, had to mean a lot to him because yeah. Barnabas was his 
his guy that stood up for him. Totally. And he lost that. And then he goes on this trip where it just seems like everything goes wrong. Yeah. And he gets harmed over and over again to the point that he's afraid that he heard wrong, that he's on the wrong road. I've had all these feelings, you know, you, you step out in faith to do something and it goes differently than you're expecting or Mm -hmm. horribly. (laughs) And that leaves you thinking, well, I must be on the wrong path. I Mm -hmm. met, you know, I must've, I must've misunderstood because Mm -hmm. this is not borne out. And I think what we see here in chapter 18 is how God is with and And that's the point. And that at the end of it all, Paul goes into what he knows and what he loves and that helps him survive. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's a powerful message right now. You know, as, as the whole world endures levels of trauma right now Mm -hmm. that are in some ways kind of abrupt and shocking, like all of a sudden, you know, here's all this change that God comes right into that with us. He's already there with us and he's walking with us. He's nurturing us in the midst of the trauma Mm -hmm. and he is holding out some delight for us um, to navigate this. Like that is a way that he gives to us in the midst. It's different now because a lot of the delights that we have, we can't get to, you know, Mm -hmm. it's so much but he's still aware of what we love. He's still aware and he's got that to give to us in, in ways. And if we, we, it's important that we open our eyes to that, to navigate this trauma, to see that delight and that it's okay. It is okay to engage that. Yeah. To, to endure and to heal and to get through. We must, we must engage those Mm -hmm. delights that he's holding out for us. Yeah. You know, when this, um, when everything shut down, um, just over a month ago, I mean, I, I totally, I, I understand that this is scary. It's serious. It's life and death. Like, you know, and, and at the same time I felt, I don't relief, I guess like relief and like, I can take a breath, like, oh my goodness, we get to slow down. I don't have to rush you know, do the rushing that I had been doing. And I, I already was in a season of life where I didn't feel like I was rushing the same way that I was three years ago or five years ago or seven years ago, but still life is full and it's busy. And, and I felt like I was rushing and it was like, oh, oh my goodness, I don't have to make all the school lunches and get everybody off to school and then wash all those dishes. And, you know, like, yes, there's still a lot to do, but I felt this tremendous relief that like I I don't know, just that everything could kind of go, you know, just like slow down and focus in on, on, you know, the things and the people that are most important to us and those connections and thinking about the legacy we want to leave, like just this opportunity to really hone in on what matters the most and take some deep breaths that we've been needing. Um, But I haven't wanted to say any of that because it feels like it's, it feels like it's in such conflict with the magnitude of this global crisis, you know? Um, so I don't know, I guess yeah, that's a way I, that I'm experiencing delight. In the yeah, midst of this. yeah. I think that, um, 
something my, my neighbors hear when somebody passes away and they have, a, they build a fire um, immediately in front of the house or to the side of the house, depending if it's a male or a female that passed. And, and you know this. So when you pass a home, you can tell if they've lost wow. a male or a female and everybody gathers to the fire and they have a night all night people sit around the fire and they tell stories and initially the stories are sad um they talk about the passing and what happened and there's a lot of wailing they wail mm. here out loud which is extremely healthy um you kind of it's a way of expressing big you know that yeah. that loss and then over the course of the night, um, there's a lot of drinking that goes on, but the stories turn from the sadness to the mirth and they, they retell funny stories from the village or they, they laugh about that time that the pigs got out or, you know, they, they tell funny things as well and it kind of mixes so the person is still gone and there's still sadness mm -hmm. and it is real and felt. And there's also this, this life that mixes in all through story, mm -hmm. you know, it all, it all comes together through story. And I think this season, like you said, it's causing this definitely a pause in everything across the world, which allows us all to take a breath. And that is a delight. I mean, in the, in the breathing, there is a lot of, we need it. <clears throat> and our world just goes, 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 and doesn't yeah. always do that. So the breathing is so important. And it's going to be both things. It's going to be heavy grief. And it's going to be also joyful in ways. Mm -hmm. and, and those two things don't have to separate. You mm -hmm. know, we don't always feel them at the exact same time. And certainly would want to say into somebody who is just experiencing the loss of a loved one. I'm not suggesting that that's delightful at all. Right. Um, right. Not at all. Um, but that, that there is, there is both things at play mm -hmm. is necessary for function mm -hmm. that, you know, we are, we are all moving into both of those things. Yeah. I watch my, my neighbors who deal with, death a lot in their family systems. Mm -hmm. um, they do this. They, they move both, all of these things in their grief process. And I, I learned from that. I learned mm -hmm. that when we gather to grieve and mourn, that there's going to be some funny stories too, because that's a part, mm -hmm. you know, of that life that we're honoring and, and sharing in. I think it, we're going to have to welcome both of those into this season yeah. because we're going to need them both um, yeah. to navigate. Yeah. Well, that's a really beautiful note to end on just um, that. Um, I don't know. I feel like that gives a bit of hope um, and, and peace knowing that this is really heavy and, and grief filled mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's okay to also look for the joy and to, yeah. you know, to be practicing gratitude um, and to, you know, see what, what good there is already springing up around us. And I, I, I just want to quote you what you said there right at the end of your sermon about um, 
about Paul hearing from God that it, it clarified what truly matters, where God is near us and where God will always be with us. Um, I just, I love that because, um, you know, when you think about the, the question of evil and the, you know, where is God or why did this happen? Or, you know, kind of in the midst of suffering, those questions that we all get to in some, you know, we, we are, we're all kind of getting at that same thing. Um, like, you know, how could this happen? How could God let this happen? Um, that, God is with us. Like that is the promise that God is with us. The promise is not that there's no suffering. It's not that bad things won't happen, but that God is with us, which is a better promise than any other. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your sermon. Thank you for participating with us. Um, thank you for sharing um, with us about what's happening um, halfway around the world where you are and how you're experiencing this and how your neighbors are experiencing this. Um, Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you. It's been great to visit with you. And you. If today you find yourself on the outside without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash jenhalechristie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at jenhalechristie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.